Hello again. I uh, must admit to being a little bit inspired at the moment because I'm recording this on Nature Photography Day, uh, which I admit I didn't know, but it's the 15th of June. And I was just looking at some photographs that one particular site that I follow on Instagram posted, and I thought they were, there were some really good photographs in there. And um, they're definitely the kind of photograph I would love to shoot uh, when I'm shooting animals or nature. And I thought it was worth sharing just some ideas that that kind of prompted, uh, because it's um, it's been a few um, podcasts since I got into this, at least as far as I can remember. <laughs> so um, I picked out nine different topics and thought I'd just say a few words on each one, and hopefully that will give you some ideas. Um, a lot of these, I'm sure, I've mentioned in one form or another in past podcasts and definitely in webinars. If you've um, been and, and joined any of my uh, my webinars on photography, but I thought it was worth repeating them because sometimes we need to hear things a few times before they sink in. That definitely uh, is the case for me. I'm one of those people. And all the time I'm talking through this stuff, it would be really good if you could just think about, just in the back of your mind, let it kind of uh, sort of flow away, working away in the background. What makes a great nature photograph for you? What are the things that you really love? If you think about a nature photograph that has really inspired you, you felt some sort of connection with, the sort of thing you'd love to shoot yourself. What is it about those photographs, if there are more than one, and I'm sure there are, what is it specifically about them that make those photographs stand out for you? Because it all comes down to what works for you. Photography, ultimately, as in any form of art, is a personal experience. So what works for one person definitely is not guaranteed to work for anybody else. So um, it is very, very um, personal. So the first thing I'm going to pick up on is what I've turned view location. So the photograph that got me thinking about that was an underwater shot of a humpback whale and there's a diver in the, in the picture as well. And clearly a shot like that, a lot of people don't have access to because they're not divers or they have very limited access to where there are whales. And the humpback whale particularly is tricky because it uh, goes on an annual migration. So it's definitely not in the same location all year round. So that can, that again will limit when you can take that kind of shot. But the thing that really stands out for me is just the location, the where the viewer is. And what the photographer has done is taken the viewer on a journey where you're now underwater, you're seeing this animal in its natural environment, but it's a point of view that you very rarely get. Very few of us, relatively, have seen humpback whales underwater. Those of us who have seen them, mostly we're watching them from a boat or even from land, but we're watching what's going on on the surface. We're not in the water with them. We're not underwater with them and looking at what's going on so most of um, what goes on with whales is, is actually hidden from the viewer who's on the surface so that to me makes that photograph stands out because the where the viewer where we're taken as a viewer is unusual now if you do shoot underwater photography one of the things that you need to remember is that 
like what you see changes so you're almost inevitably going to have to do some post-processing on your photographs because red light gets absorbed very quickly in the first few meters actually and then you get this blue cast on photographs so if you don't do anything with the photograph and this is another way of making them stand out but if you just leave them as you've shot them they tend to be quite have quite a strong blue cast they may even seem opaque the way that you uh, view the subject but it's quite easy to correct that in different post-processing packages I'm not going to go through step by step um, with any of them but one thing to look at is um, essentially it's color balance but look at your white balance those kind of things and there's plenty of help on the web on um, correcting photographs that have been shot underwater and I've certainly done that myself and it just suddenly makes that photograph come alive so you can have something that's kind of looks fairly ordinary from a colour perspective, just looking at it. Hopefully it's all in focus, so technically it's correct and the exposure's good. But once you correct the colours, that will transform the um, the photograph. So if you are somebody who takes photographs underwater or is thinking about doing it, then definitely bear that in mind because there are not that many photographers, relatively speaking, that I've seen who, who do a lot of underwater photography. There are definitely a few, and um, the, really, the, I think the first thing to, to get on top of is just understanding what happens to light when you go underwater. And from there, uh, you're definitely into composition, you're into your skills as a diver, your skills as a photographer. But once you understand how light works underwater, then that gives you the opportunity to create some absolutely stunning images. And Another option you might have, depending on where you are, is to use something like a GoPro in a, in a waterproof housing and just have it on a, a stick, um, one of those selfie sticks maybe, and hang it over the edge of a boat so that the, the camera is underwater. And um, you can sometimes get some quite good results just doing that, depending on what it is you're photographing and where you are. So, But do make sure that um, you have got all your kit. It is properly waterproof. Um, I would make sure you've got a wrist strap on or something so you don't lose it. <laughs> so um, there you go. But these are just ideas to start creating some really standout photographs. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is unusual angles. And what I mean by that is just getting a view of an animal that people wouldn't normally see and perhaps wouldn't necessarily expect to see. So this kind of builds on the previous one. And the photograph that made me think about that was a picture of an elephant swimming, but it was taken underwater. So again, um, it depends on whether you've got access to the animals. Um, generally, if, if you're going to do that, you, you definitely want to be with a guide. You need to be a very competent diver. Um, you've got to understand the animal. And definitely, if you're with a guide taking on that kind of thing, definitely listen to them because they're there to um, keep you safe and also not upset the animal but if you do have the opportunity to shoot something like that and again if you're in a boat close to uh, an animal doing that it might be that you could stick a, um, a waterproof camera just over the side on a, on a selfie stick or something like that and just attempt some shots that way you've got nothing to lose but getting shots like that again they're unusual and they're unusual partly from the angle, but also they're slightly unexpected because mostly when you think of an elephant, 
you think of it being on land, you think of it, you know, walking along on land, maybe feeding, whatever else it's doing, but not so much swimming from the perspective of being underwater with the animal. So that was another one that, um, for me, I, I just love those kind of photographs. Now, the third idea, the third thought is to getting close to the animal. And I've seen quite a few um, pictures of foxes that people have taken, particularly Arctic foxes, the, the white ones. And I remember listening to a photographer, and I think he got Wildlife Photographer of the Year one year, or he might have been one of the, the runners-up. But he was talking about how he would, I think he was in Scotland, and he was going to the same place pretty much every day at the same sort of time and just photographing these foxes. And initially they stayed quite a long way from him. But because he just went there day after day and didn't do anything to threaten them, they gradually came in closer and he was able to get some really intimate photographs of them. Now, the other thing about that is to always be ready for the shot. So sometimes something will happen. It might just be the way the animal turns its head. It might be an expression. It might be the way two animals interact. But it can happen in a moment. And if you're not ready for it, you'll miss it and you may not ever get that opportunity again. So in addition to thinking about how you can build a relationship with the animal, a a sort of level of trust with the animal to get these really intimate shots, you still have to be a photographer first and be ready for the shot every time. So obviously that means knowing your camera, doing all the things you've got to do, clear SD cards or whatever you're using, make sure your batteries are good, all these other things, making sure you're comfortable and you're you're just there and ready, whatever happens, but you're there to observe. So that was another uh, aspect of that photography for me that, that I really liked about one of the shots in particular that I saw. So that ability to get in close and get these really intimate shots. And that for me, when I'm photographing animals, and I've definitely done it with um, uh, some elephant shots I've got. I've got quite a few elephant shots I'm quite pleased with. But they got him very, I got him, managed to get him very close. And most of them, I'm looking at the eye contact with the uh, the animal. And this also goes for some lion photographs I've got where the animal is looking straight at me. And you get that um, eye contact. And then I think you go beyond it being just a lion or an elephant, whatever it is, but you connect with the little being or the big being (laughs) that's sort of behind the eyes. You get that there is uh, a personality in there. You know, this animal is thinking, it's it's weighing things up maybe, or it's relaxing, it's just observing you. But there are things going on behind those eyes. And and once you make that eye contact, and this is what I love about these, these close shots, when you make that eye contact, you get some sense of what's going on behind the eyes. And this also... Um, I, I used to do people portraits, and this was also something that I found was very powerful in um, uh, portraits. When I, was, when I was photographing people, if you managed to get very good eye contact with them, quite often something of their personality would come back through the shot. Also, the, um, the expression on their face is a part of it as well. But um, for me, the best portraits are where you catch something of the essence of that person and it's hard to define in words, but just looking at that photograph, anyone who knows them will say, oh, yeah, that is that person. And you've just got that connection. So sometimes investing a bit of time, again, if you are located where you can do that, where you can go out day after day, 
can allow you to get some really amazing photographs by just putting the hours in and um, building up the relationship with your subject. Now, another aspect is composition, and I've, I've done a few uh, wildlife uh, composition webinars, and composition is something I've spoken about before. But composition can be, it can really make a shot, and obviously getting it wrong can break a shot as well. You can get everything right, everything else right, but it can be kind of ordinary. And um, again, this was a picture of some. Um, ducks and flamingos just together but what the photographer had done he had got down very low so he was almost shooting between the legs of these flamingos to get these um uh, ducklings they were so you've got that kind of connection with the ducklings but they're in a um a scenario in a setting where there are other animals around so you've got some context and in addition to getting down low what this photographer also did was to use a relatively narrow depth of field so that the animals behind the subject were out of focus, but you could still see what they were. So again, think about how you're using depth of field. And it's all about drawing the viewer's eye onto your subject. But if you get the background right, if you've got a very, very narrow depth of field, the background can be just a blurry anything. So that's fine, you know, that might be what you're going for. That can be perhaps even a little bit abstract as a background. But if you've got um, a deeper depth of field, then the animals or whatever is in the background is recognisable for what it is. But because it's a little out of focus, it kind of draws the viewer's eye back to your subject, which is really what you want to want to be doing, because it's really important to have a clear subject in your um, in your photographs. So getting down low is something I like to do. If I'm in fact, both, um, if you've heard me speak about photographing things like humpback whales, if you've heard me speak about photographing other animals, one of the things I like to do is get as low as possible and, and try and get to their eye level. So I'm shooting directly at their eye. Um, so that's, you know, I guess a, a tip. It's certainly something I try to do with my photography. So um, the fifth thing was the subject's location. And here I'm thinking about um, photographing a wild animal, but in a location you wouldn't normally expect them. This could be, uh, there was a picture of a polar bear um, in an abandoned house. So it's actually standing in the window with its its um, forelegs sort of, you know, through the, on the, resting on the windowsill. And um, it's obviously inside the building. There was another, there's a photograph I have, which I took of a young elephant next to an abandoned um, farmhouse in South Africa. And this house had been abandoned for about 100 years. The trees were growing up through it. And um, it was like nature reclaiming um, this this particular farmhouse. But anywhere where you've got animals in um, particularly urban situations, because you don't normally expect them, and... Here I'm, you know, again thinking about something I saw recently with, um, um, I think it was a black bear. It was in Canada, I think, and um, possibly a brown bear. And it was actually pulling the cover off a jacuzzi in this person's um, home in their backyard and sitting in the jacuzzi. <laughs> so things like that are great because you've now got the animal. I was speaking before about shooting them. In, in in the context of where they live. Now you've got them out of context. They're out of where you would normally expect to see them. And it can be quite sobering sometimes to see animals in 
um, very familiar environments that we perhaps live in ourselves day to day. So that was number five. Number six is unusual events. This is typically things like um, animal migrations. And um, the picture that I saw was this massive group of um, jellyfish and a, a diver there, and it was shot from underwater again. But another photograph I've seen, and I forget, I think it might be Easter Island, but I'm probably wrong on that. But these um, little red crabs do this migration every year where they just, it's, it's, it's like they're swarming. They come from wherever they normally live and then they go to the beach to, um, I think they lay eggs and, and all of that. But they get, you have quite literally thousands of these tiny crabs walking across main roads. They actually block the road. That they stop cars going through because they know this is a um, an annual event and um, the, these animals just swarm through. So, uh, luck, fortunately, the the um, authorities there respect that, and the the people who live there respect that they're sharing their home with these um, animals. Um, there are these great wildebeest migrations as well that you see in in Central Africa, so in Southern Africa. So things like that are all, also make a great subject because they don't happen every day. They're things that might happen once or twice a year, depending on what it is you're looking at. And because you get sheer numbers, I think that's the other thing that has a big impact, where you have a large number of individual animals involved in this migration. That in itself makes it um, a pretty impressive event to photograph. And I know with some of the things like the Willoughby's migrations, with the use of drone photography and Drone photography has got so good that the cameras now are just amazing. If you're into that and you're allowed to do it, which is, of course, another thing to be conscious of, you can get some really amazing photographs. And again, your viewer location, which I started off with, is is unusual because most of us are not airborne when we're photographing these animals. So again, you're even looking at these animals. So it gives takes the viewer to a different angle to a different perspective and they get to experience these animals and what they're doing in a different way. Okay, um, I want to talk about lighting and I'm thinking definitely with animals and also with landscapes here. So the kind of thing that I have in mind is first of all using backlighting. So I've used it a few times on animals. I've been lucky enough to just be in the right spot and that can be a really impressive picture when you backlight an animal. I'm thinking of a kudu, actually, as one of my photographs in one of the collections um, that I have at the moment. And that's just, it's just silhouetted by the setting sun. So there's a kind of orangey um, edge to the animal where it's, it's being backlit beautifully by the sun. Another way to use that golden hour light is to have the light onto the animal. So again, I've got pictures of um, giraffe and things like that that were shot and, and whales that were shot around sunset when you're in that golden hour period and that orange light just gives you a different perspective it's a really nice time to do any kind of photography really I've used it for portraits as well but it's just a nice it's a light it's slightly different it's not how you would normally see things you can p- perhaps as a viewer connect with it differently um but again, when, when viewers connect with an image, it's emotional, it's personal. So maybe that, I personally think that lighting is more powerful. It's definitely um, a recommended time of day to photograph wildlife. Uh, whereas middle of the day with the sun directly above is is a very um, harsh light. And um, 
it also tends to create shadows around the animal's eyes. So you can't, you kind of lose that connection with the animal often. So golden hour is a big one. And also if you're in, now here I'm thinking of forests. So I was thinking of, of when I was in India photographing tigers, going into the forest, you get these shafts of sunlight through the trees sometimes as the sun, just depending on where the, what the angle of the sun is. But generally, again, when it's lower down, and the, these can be real. I, I find them quite enigmatic. <laughs> Just seeing these shafts of sunlight between the trees, or, or maybe there's a, a road driving through the trees, and you get these shafts, these beams of light coming through the trees and across the road. So anything like that can just create a, a photograph that has more to it than you know a fairly regular. Um, a shot of that same landscape but with an even light and um, I, I think you'd lose something by sometimes by just using a regular even light okay um, number eight is um, atmosphere so what do I mean by that um, another word might be mood so you might be able to shoot photographs with good mood straight off and what I mean by that is to how do you want the viewer to feel when they look at the photograph do you want them to feel happy about it maybe bright colors um that can give quite a kind of upbeat feel to an image or maybe you want it dark maybe you want a lot of shadow in the image maybe shadow around the face maybe part of the animal's face person's face depending on what you're shooting is hidden and that can be quite enigmatic so that's a different sort of a mood so Sometimes you can't shoot that mood as you see the subject, but it's something that you can work on when you're doing your post-processing. And sometimes I've shot photographs and I've kind of known in my mind what I wanted to end up with. And it might even be black and white. So clearly I'm seeing things in color. Uh, but in, in my mind, I, I've got this same picture, but in black and white. And I want to kind of work um, the mood. I either want to play with how bright or how dark it is maybe play with the contrast so it starts becoming a bit more abstract um, but these are all things you can do with mood so again it's something to um, think about really with any kind of photograph but it applies equally to nature photographs and um, again you can create something that's quite different quite distinct if you think of Ansel Adams if you're familiar with his work he was shooting in black and white of these um, national parks and um, locations around the United States. So he's shooting black and white. Black and white creates a different connection to a colour photograph because, again, we don't see things in black and white. We see them in colour. So to see something that can be quite a familiar object, something we see maybe every day, but looking at it in black and white, because black and white is all about shapes and textures, it can give you a, diff a different appreciation for that subject. Okay, and then finally, um, I want to talk about timing. So capturing a moment. Now, what I like to do when I'm photographing animals that are moving is to try and catch them. With things like whales, when they're breaching, I like to just freeze the moment if I can so I'm shooting in thousandths of a second because that will freeze individual water droplets coming off the body of a, a whale as it's breaching and I, I love that kind of shot it's like absolutely nailed that moment in time another animal that's difficult to photograph because they move so fast are dolphins 
So when you see them doing this porpoising, where they're jumping out of the water, the way they swim really fast, and they're in and out of the water all the time, that it's a fraction of a second. So you can't possibly <laughs> just set your viewfinder up, set you know, do your focus, get your exposure right, all of that, and then take the photograph. You know, that animal's long gone. So you have to be a bit more sort of canny about how you get the shots. And what I do is just, again, shut up, set up a, a fast shutter speed in around thousandths of a second. I measure it in thousandths of a second. Set up what I refer to as a focus box. So I've got my focal point and then I set my depth of field so that at a certain area in front of that point and a certain area behind of that point, I know are going to be in focus and then I'll fire. And with that technique, depending on how fast the animal is going, you're going to lose a lot of shots, certainly get a lot of shots you don't really want. That's certainly my experience with things like dolphins, which are very fast. But every now and again, you'll absolutely freeze a moment. And the reason that I like that is that, again, you're you're giving the viewer the opportunity just to look at that animal as it's frozen in that moment and just see it in a way they can't possibly see it if they're looking at it in a, in a live situation, if they're in a boat and, and looking at these animals um, swimming through. Another photograph I saw by... Um, uh, another photographer, I think it was a, it was a photographer in Sydney, um, he'd been out with somebody and he had managed to capture this frog on um, a palm frond. And it was a beautiful photograph. But what he had done, he was with somebody else. So he was ready with his camera. The other person just lifted away a frond that was between the frog and the guy with the camera, lifted it away. The frog almost immediately jumped away. But this guy was just there. You know, he was ready to take the shot and he captured the moment of that frog just sitting on the the palm leaf. Now, that might not sound terribly exciting, but the fact is, because a lot of these animals, as soon as you disturb them like that, they just go. Again, he's managed to just freeze that moment where you can see the animal in a way that you can't see it normally in nature. So if you, if you were walking along this path with this guy and he wasn't ready to take the shot, pull the palm from back and the the frog is just gone in an instant so you may not even be able to see very well what it is and I also used to do this with um, some of the lizards in um, Sydney where I lived I'd go for a walk um, Spitbridge to Manly was the walk and there are these um, really beautiful lizards that would um, they, they can be a meter long or so they, they can be relatively large but again they're very skittish they don't like you getting close so Again, I would just take my time and sit down, take some pictures from a fair way off, move slightly closer, make sure I wasn't scaring the animal. And um, again, not do anything to disturb it, not do anything to make it look like I was a threat and gradually get more and more photographs. So again, going back to um, what I was saying, point number three about getting in close just take your time. You're definitely in better shape if you are if you live near where there are good subjects, good animal subjects to shoot. And um, if you can, can get out there regularly, particularly if it's the same animal, so they get a chance to get used to you, uh, that, that can open the door for taking some amazing photographs. So I hope that's given you some ideas. I hope you found that interesting. Um, I'm sure there are some photographs around for um, Nature Photography Day. I guess if you Google it, you'll, you might even see some of the photographs I was talking about. 
But things like that, I, I find it always worth a Google and have a look through to see what's there because I almost always get ideas from looking at other people's work. And, and it just gives me things that perhaps I can incorporate or a way they've used the camera, the way they've set it up to get a certain shot. So as I will have said before, <laughs> I'm sure, um, a good photographer is always learning. I don't think you ever get there as a photographer. I think you're always getting new ideas, getting an inspiration, uh, either from your own work or from other people's. And that's how you, this to me keeps it alive. It's a growing thing because you're constantly evolving as, as a photographer and as an artist, if you want to think of yourself that way. Okay, so that's it from me. I will um, speak, to, speak to you in the next podcast or see you on the next webinar or wherever we may meet. So bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, You'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 